I love the sound of a clock. It's something about listening to that sound in a quiet room that doesn't distract or frustrate me. It actually draws my focus and attention together. I especially love little clocks, watches. I, I collect watches. None of them super nice. I've, I've loved to purchase watches on my travels. That's one of my souvenirs around the world. And In fact, usually the watches that I, I purchase, um, sometimes I would call them like a Folex. Have you ever heard that term? <laughs> a, a fake Rolex. So I'll go into a market somewhere around the world and, and I, I may buy a fake nice watch. And so I have a few watches and before Christmas I decided it was about time that that I got some more of my watches working. So I, I found a great watch repair store and, and I took a few watches, well, 14 watches to be exact, that weren't working. I took them to the repair store, and it was interesting what I learned. I recognized I really didn't know what had made these watches tick. In fact, um, this great friend from Lebanon who was working there, he, he smiled. I mean, he looked at one of my Folexes. He said, now that's a nice one. Almost fooled me, <laughs> but didn't. Uh, but he would take the different watches and, and on some of them he said, hey, this just needs a battery. I'm like, okay, well, let's replace the battery. Um, on some of them, they said, hey, this is an, an, an automatic watch. <laughs> You've got to wear it. You've got to use it for it to, to work. There was another one that he said, this needs to be wound and regularly wound. Um, there were a couple that they had sat without a battery so long that he said, you're not fixing these. It's not worth it. Um, and then there were a couple that were broken. And, and I realized there were different things that made all of those watches tick. And as I thought about that, I thought about the 30 years or so that I've spent either training or investing in, in people like you and me and in the church and ministry. And, and I've realized how many Christ followers don't understand what makes us tick spiritually, what, what motivates us, what drives us to that point of service in the body of Christ. And as a result, way too often... We're not doing what we should be doing. We don't look like we should look. We're not healthy as the body of Christ. And, and that's what Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 12. Now, we've been talking about spiritual gifts. Let me remind you what a spiritual gift is. Spiritual gifts are those divine or God-given abilities, those capacities that enable a follower of Christ, so it's distinct to Christians, it enables a follower of Christ to, to serve and, and to minister for the glory of God. I mean, there's a very clear purpose of what a spiritual gift is. But throughout my life, I've discovered there are a lot of Christ followers who have spiritual gifts that are unwrapped, or, or that are wrapped. They've not been unwrapped. They've not been utilized for the glory of God. And, and so what I'm trying to do is to, to bring you to a point where you unwrap your gift. Because when you unwrap your gift, life is more enjoyable. You begin to experience life the way God intended you to. And you're fulfilled in your faith journey. And, and when you unwrap your spiritual gift, the church 
is always edified. It, it's built up. It becomes stronger and more healthy. And, and when you unwrap your spiritual gift, Jesus is always exalted because you're pointing others to him. And, and people see him in you. And that's what Paul was trying to, to explain to this church at Rome just like he would try to explain to the church at Corinth, which tells me this was a problem in the church way back then, and it's still a problem in the church today, and we need to hear it. So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Now, this verse begins with a word that I heard my father, my pastor, address even as I was a child. He would say this, when you see therefore in the Bible, you need to ask, what is this therefore? I mean, what is this connecting? What is this saying I need to be looking to? And that sounds so simple, but it's so helpful because I, I never just want to gloss over a therefore. And Paul here, he gives us a hint into the therefore because he says, in view of God's mercy. You understand what mercy is? Mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. So the whole book of Romans in theological terms is, is thought of as a soteriological book, a book about soteriology or salvation. It describes our salvation. And a lot of you even have learned a way to share your faith through Scripture from Romans called the Romans Road because it outlines everything it means to be saved and what it means to experience God's mercy. For example, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so this verse reminds us that we're all in the same boat, that we all have missed out on God's ultimate design, that we live life perfect and pleasing to Him because we're all sinners. So we're, we're not sinners because of the bad things we've done, though that's contributed to it. We're sinners because that's who we are. We're born that way, sinful and separated from God, and every one of us is in that category. But it doesn't stop there. The road goes on to tell us in Romans in verse 23 of chapter 6, that the wages of sin is death. So guess what? You're going to pay for your sin. You're always going to pay for your sin. And the righteous payment for sin is always going to be death. But that verse goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So how, how do we get this gift instead of the penalty, the punishment of death? And, and that's what Romans 5, 8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't that good news? That's how we get the gift. And so there comes a point in our life where I recognize I'm a sinner and that sin separated me from God. And, and as a result of that sin, I deserve to die. But instead of death, God gives to me a gift, the gift of salvation. When I receive the gift of salvation, I don't get death, I get life. How do I do that? Well, it says in Romans 10 that if I declare with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved far. It is, it, it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and, and you're saved for Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, just a quick question. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Yeah. 
Has there been that moment in your life? Because everything we're about to talk about is kind of dependent upon that reality. The gifts that some of you have that are unwrapped, or that are wrapped, that need to be unwrapped, you only receive those if you first called on the name of the Lord. That's why Paul says, man, as a result of this overwhelming mercy, you have a responsibility. Let's continue in in verse 2 and see what he goes on to say about how we live. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good and perfect and pleasing will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And just as each one of us has a body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. He's describing how to discover what makes you tick. And I think... If you discover what makes you tick spiritually, what motivates you, it's going to lead you to that fulfilling faith journey. If you don't, if you don't discover what makes you tick, you're probably going to be ticked. Or you, make the, you may make the people around you ticked. So let's not, let's not choose those options. Let's discover what makes us tick. And he gives us really three things in eight verses. First of all, he says, seek God's will. Do me a favor. Raise your hand if you want to know and do God's will. All my life, that's the number one things Christians say. I just, I, just want to, I just want God's will. Seek God's will. Number two, heed God's warning. He's going to tell us how we seek His will, and then He's going to tell us, hey, but be careful. There's a danger zone. And then number three, live God's way. First one, seek God's will. How do we seek God's will? Well, that's verse 1 and 2. Look at it again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. How do I seek God's will? I present myself to God. Here I am, Lord. I'm yours. At the core of our faith and at the center of God's will is the idea of surrender. It's, it's putting my yes on the table. It's bending the knee. It's, it's bowing the head. It's acknowledging that there's a sovereign, and I am not the sovereign. There's a king, and I am not the king. But I live for and answer to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How do I do that? Well, he goes on to tell us. I intentionally re- reject conformity to this world, the patterns of this world. I I don't begin to look like the world. In other words, I'm not a chameleon. Have you seen a chameleon? He, He looks like whatever he's around. Have you seen a person that's a chameleon? If they're at church, it's hallelujah. 
Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. They're lifting their, they know when to lift their hands. They know everything. But on Saturday night in a different location, they have different behaviors. He said, don't be a chameleon conforming to the patterns of the world. What are some of the patterns of the world? Well, I, I think of uh, selfishness. I would probably word it this way. It's all about me. I just want to take care of number one. That's the pattern of the world. Look at every advertisement on, on your media. Look at how you're marketed to. It, it's that you are what's most important. And as a result, another pattern of the world is, is the seeking of pleasure, isn't it? So what makes me feel good? I mean, so if, if I need to drink more or I need to take more, if I need to have more sex or be in illicit relationships, whatever makes me feel good, pleasure, which leads to another pattern of the world, which is addiction. Just give me more, give me more, give me more. And I'm going to just feed this pleasure-seeking selfishness until I get more. And so he's saying, you want to please God, you want to do His will, reject that. Don't conform. Don't be a chameleon. Instead, experience metamorphosis. That's the word that he uses next, which is intentionally transform your mind. And he really talks about the renewing of the mind. Let God renew your mind and take away those thoughts of selfishness and, and pleasure that lead to addiction, those things of the world, and replace that, renew it with the things of God. Then, with that fresh and new mind, you'll begin to look at life and you'll see God's will. We could spend the whole time just talking about God's will, but I, I want to tell you what you just got as a bonus. You want to know how to know and do God's will? When you have the mind of Christ, the mystery re resolves. You're not trying to have to figure it out. It becomes clear because you're able to test and approve his good and his pleasing and his perfect will. So, he, he says, seek God's will. But then secondly, you've got to heed God's warning. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. What does that mean? He, he's saying, look at yourself realistically. Because the danger is we get into this mode of I'm seeking after God and we, we realize we fail so we start to pretend and we puff up projecting something that we are not. And I've seen this all my life in church. And that's why as a pastor I, I regularly try to remind you that man I fell and I sinned and I, I let down God and I I, I let down the people closest to me. I let down others. I, I struggle with the control of my thoughts. And sometimes my actions are not pleasing to God. And, man, my tongue often causes me to sin. And, and I have to confess and, and ask forgiveness because I, I want you to see that that's the norm. See, we've become good at being professional Christians. So we, we pretend. And regardless of how we dress outwardly, we put on our church self. And we know when to raise our hand, and, and we know when to clap, and, and we, we know when to act like something is good, while on the inside our life is falling apart, and, and we're filled with doubt, or, or last night, or Friday night, we, we were sinful, and, and we were 
we were in a club or, or we were caught up in a relationship that was dishonoring to God or, or we're sitting by our spouse now and we're, we're trying to play the part, but our marriage is falling apart and, and life is crumbling before us, but boy, we're pretending. And I think he would call that thinking of yourself more highly than you ought rather than looking at yourself with sober judgment. And so I would just tell you while moving on that, you know, if that triggered something, and that was my purpose, it should have triggered something because I understand who we are. I know who I am. I, I, <laughs> this is a hospital, peeps. So if that triggered something, I want to encourage you to seek some help. And, and first you do that because if you're a follower of Christ, you've got access through the Holy Spirit of God to God. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is your advocate and he's there on behalf. And, and it begins with just acknowledging, man, I'm not what I'm pretending to be. But secondly, come to us. Whether after one of our services or during the week, come to one of our pastors. And here's a newsflash. You're not going to shock us. We've heard it. I mean, do you think your life is going to shock us? We deal with prostitution. We deal with addiction of every kind. We deal with swingers. Your junk's not going to surprise us, and it doesn't surprise God. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Submit yourself to Him. Surrender to Him. And let's get in there being the body, which is the third thing. He's saying, seek God's will. Heed God's warning. And then live God's way. And that seems like an oversimplification. <laughs> How do we do it? Just do it God's way. But it kind of is. And that's the problem. Some of us have, have not understood that. That God created you. Do you know that? The same God that hung the moon in the sky and has Power over the weather. He created you. And in fact, it says you were wonderfully made by him, knit together in your mother's womb. And he made us all different. That's why his parents were taught by Proverbs that our goal is to train up a child in the way that he should go. It's literally a word that means the way that they are bent, B-E-N-T, naturally we have five children, every one of them different. If we parent them in the same way, we're going to fail. If we recognize that God has given them different personalities and different gifts and different abilities, and we understand that and we try to raise them up in that understanding, we're going to have more success. So Scripture throughout is going to say, God created you. You're unique. You're valuable. That's why every life matters. And you're going to be most effective when you discover the specific, unique way that he created you. So how do we know the way to go? Well, that's what Thomas asked Jesus. And Jesus said, John 14, I am the way. So, so the first step to living life God's way, I'm just telling you, it always goes back to the gospel. Everything in your life goes back to the gospel. The first step to living God's way is surrendering to Jesus. Then you begin to say, all right, God, I'm created in your image. I'm saved by your grace. How then am I distinct? You're not one in a million. 
You're one in all of creation. So how do you discover that? That's what Paul is dealing with in the following verses. Uh, Look in verse 4. Just as each one of us have one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us, and then it goes through the list. Seven of them. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So, so just like in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, he's reminding Christ's followers, you are a body not unlike the human body. There are a bunch of different parts. We are different, but we're one. By the way, that's why the Scripture teaches us repeatedly about the Trinity, that which we have trouble understanding. But the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, distinct, different, yes, one, yes. Diversity, and yet unity. And, and that's what the church is. When we're functioning healthy, we're a body, a body that is diverse, but a body that enjoys unity. Remember how we talked about how different parts of the body have a different role? I, I cursed myself last week because I gave this illustration and then I went home and I experienced it. When I stumped my toe, You stump your toe, and in a millisecond, the nerves send a message to the brain, and you think, ah, that hurt. And then in another millisecond, the brain sends a message to the tongue, and you say, ouch. And then in another millisecond, the the brain sends a message to the hand, and the hand reaches down and begins to rub the toe. All different parts of the body, all with important functions. That's why I want you to unwrap your gift. You have a function in the body, and when you unwrap your gift, life's more enjoyable. And when you unwrap your gift, the body, the church is edified. And and when you unwrap your gift, it points others to Jesus because they say, wow, now that person is living in their area of giftedness. But what happens if the body's not functioning properly? We have a term for that, right? Sickness, illness. I've heard all my life, and it it seems to be somewhat true in the church. Too often, 20% of the people do what? 80% of the work. I'm not sure that is true anymore. I think it may be more like 15% do 85%. But think of what we're saying if that's true. If 80% of the body is not doing what it's supposed to do, is the body healthy? (laughs) Okay. If 80% of the body is not doing what the body is supposed to do, is the body healthy? No. Of course not. And yet we wonder why our churches are not impacting our cities and and our state and, and our nation and the world. It's a body life problem. There's sickness. Maybe there's cancer in the body. And it's got to be addressed. Think, think, hold out your hand or some other 
part of your body to look at. And if you're sitting at home eating your donut, maybe just look down at your belly that's poking out. And just think, imagine that 80% of your body stops functioning. What would you do? And yet too often that's the church. And so Paul is trying to help us understand what our roles are. He goes through seven gifts. These gifts are needed in every church. I believe these gifts are represented in every church. And I would go a step further. I tend to believe that every Christ follower has one of these gifts as a primary motivating factor in their spiritual journey. In other words, this is what makes you tick. And yes, you have talents, and yes, you have personalities, but if we could sum you up, we could use one of these words, these motivational gifts, and we could say, that's why they act the way they are. And when it functions properly in the body, man, it makes a difference. So let's walk through those. The first of these is prophecy. Prophecy. Now, now prophecy in Scripture is utilized in a couple of different ways. In Scripture, we see prophecy in foretelling. That's telling the future. And then we also see prophecy just telling forth. The Old Testament prophets did both. In fact, if they got the future telling wrong, you know what would happen to a prophet? They would be taken to the outskirts of the city and they would be stoned to death. In the New Testament, we see this begin to move beyond just a telling of the future to telling forth the truth of God. So while I don't believe that there are still prophets who give us new revelations from God, I believe we have the full counsel of God's Word contained in Scripture. There are those who speak forth the truth of God. The motivation is to reveal the will of God by presenting God's truth. What are some characteristics of this person? Do you have the gift of prophecy? Maybe they're bold and persuasive They desire to see change. On a personal level, they're loyal. They're open to embrace their own brokenness because they see so clearly the brokenness of the world. They see things in black and white. It's either right or wrong. People of strong conviction. They're, They're quick to make judgments. But you see, all of these gifts can be manifested when we're walking in the Spirit, and they can be displayed even when we're walking in the flesh. So what's the negative ways this may appear? Well, they may appear judgmental or too harsh. They may need to remember the compassion of Christ. There are biblical examples of all of these. I think Peter would be a great example of this gift of prophecy in the New Testament. He was always quick to say what he thought, right? And And God's Word gives us some examples of when He does that in the Spirit and when He does it in the flesh. Do you have that gift of prophecy? The next in the list is the gift of serving. Serving. This is the motivation to demonstrate love by meeting practical needs. The prophet is going to be out front. They're not going to mind being in the limelight and telling you this is the way it is. The servant prefers the background. They just see a need and desire to meet the need. They find joy in serving and doing. 
If you're in a setting and you have this gift of servant, you, for example, in a worship service, you see that person near you tearing up, you start looking around and say, are there any tissues? Or, or you see someone needs a chair, you go and try to find one. Or someone's throat has a catch in it, you, you look for a bottle of water. Because you, you, you're fulfilled when you're meeting the needs of others. Now, this too can be dangerous because you can be pushy and, and try to treat everybody else like you are and think that they want to serve in the same way. You also may feel left out if you're not served the way that you serve others. In the New Testament, I think Timothy, Paul's apprentice, is a great example of this servanthood, this gift of service. But there's another one. You're familiar with her, Martha. Yes, yeah, she was the servant. She was the one that wanted to do what was necessary to serve. Do you have the gift of service? How about the gift of teaching? The teacher has the motivation to clarify and validate the truth that's been presented. So they love to research. They're all about systems, focused on accuracy and details. They delight in the intellect and the gaining of knowledge. So what's the dangers? Can become a little legalistic, maybe can become dogmatic. They may appear to be a just a facts the person, so they're not really interested in you. They just want the facts. And then Scripture teaches us what knowledge can do. Knowledge puffs up, right? You see this a lot in, in I see this a lot in church circles today. This pursuit of intellect has caused some to think that's the end all. And it, it leads to a person in the body that can become educated beyond their obedience. Biblical example of this teacher is Dr. Luke. We've got Luke and Acts written by Dr. Luke. And just look at the detail. Man, he gives us the specifics. You see that throughout Scripture. Do you have the gift of teaching? Could that be you? You find joy in sharing what you've learned with others in that way? How about the gift of exhortation or encouragement? The exhorter. This is the motivation to stimulate and encourage the faith of other people. They're going to, to counsel you to be your best for the glory of God. They're very hopeful. They're going to give you practical application, maybe even sometimes at the expense of the information. They love those steps. And so sometimes it may seem to oversimplify things. Maybe a little too much emphasis sometimes on what you can do on yourself. But boy, they make you feel good. <laughs> They're encouragers. The Apostle Paul is a great example of this exhorter because, uh, well, just think about it. That's why so much of the New Testament is from the Apostle Paul. He's writing these letters to Christians, and what is he trying to do? Come on, guys, get in the game. You can do this. Here's why, and here's how. So just finish the race, guys. Come on. Keep on keeping. That's the Apostle Paul. The exhorter, the encourager. Are you, do you have the gift of exhortation? The gift of giving. The gift of giving. Now, this is interesting because some of you think, well, I don't have that because I don't have money. Eh, not necessarily a requirement for the gift of giving. This is a motivation to use your time, your talent, your energy, and resources to benefit others and advance the gospel. Now, often we do see that these folks have organized their personal business well. They may not be wealthy, 
but they've administrated what they do have so that they can utilize that for God's glory. They're also going to give quietly and freely. They pursue excellence and they're concerned with how things are done with excellence. And often this person is content themselves with having less. The negative, of course, is they could seem focused on stuff and they give so freely, they kind of think you should give freely too. And if you're not careful, they may seem a little too high pressure. Let me give you a couple of examples of these. I believe Matthew had the gift of giving. Now, he was a tax collector, so this is kind of funny. But when, when we read in the Gospel of Matthew, when we read what Matthew had to say, he talks more about giving and gives us more of the teaching of Jesus on giving than anywhere else in the Bible. And, and then I also think we can look to a man named Barnabas as someone with the gift of giving. In Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, it says the early church was meeting one another's needs. And Barnabas, Barnabas had this land. And we don't know that if, if he had invested in this land or, or we don't know if it was inheritance or what. But Barnabas had this land and he sold the land. And you know what he did? He brought it to the church, gathered, and he gave it. The gift of giving. Do you have the gift of giving? And then the gift of leadership. Sometimes this is called administration. It's the motivation to coordinate the activities of others for the achievement of common goals. So this person is able to see things from a bird's eye view. They see the big picture. They are administrators. They're self-starters. They, they're able to break a big goal into small tasks. They delegate naturally. If you're looking at them from the outside, you may think they're lazy because they're telling everybody else what to do. If they're in the flesh, they, they may cause others to feel misused. And if they're not careful, they can sometimes make it seem like the project or the program is more important than the person. Biblically, I think um, James is a good example of this. James um, pastored the church at Jerusalem. And as you read the writing in the book of James, what does he tell us again and again? He tells us that our faith needs to be put into action. He's trying to motivate the church to do. And then the gift of mercy. The gift of mercy or compassion is the motivation to identify with and, and, and give comfort to persons who are in distress. So this person naturally relates both mentally and emotionally they have a capacity to empathize. You, you talk to them and you think, they understand. They know what I'm feeling. You talk to the prophet and you think, they don't care what I'm feeling. But the mercy person, yeah. They're always going to look for the best. They're going to be sensitive. They love people and desire friendship. Now, in the negative, they may depend a little too much on emotion and not enough on knowledge. And also... That sensitivity, it works both ways, right? They can get their feelings hurt pretty easy. So you have to be careful for the flesh in that way. John in the Bible, John the beloved, great an example of this gift of mercy. But there's another one. She's the partner with Martha. You know who it is? Yeah, Mary. Mary just wants this show... How much she loved. Do you see these different gifts? 
how, how they motivate you. So everything you begin to do as a follower of Christ begins to flow out of these. They, they are what make us tick. And it affects every area of our lives. My dad, you know, he was a strong personality too, and he had a lot of talents and gifts, but he was the prophet. That was his primary gift, the prophet. And he would tell you, he would tell you like it was. I mean, I, this is kind of funny. Some of you are old enough to remember this, but I, I distinctly remember a Sunday night. I don't know how this fit into the context and the exposition of the Scripture, but I distinctly remember him just shouting out, I'd rather be dead than red. He was just always clear to tell us what he thought. My mom is the mercy gift. I mean, like still to this day, I'm going to be quiet in case she's watching because she's kind of hard of hearing. But still to this day, it's hard to have a conversation with tear, without tears just coming to her eyes. She's just full of compassion. So I can remember how this played out practically in college life. I mean, as a college boy, I might call home, and I was out of money, and I'd talk to my dad and say, hey, dad, I'm sorry, but I could use a little help. I'm, I'm kind of out of money. And instantly, it'd be like, well, what'd you do with it? Where is it? You need a budget. Do you have a budget? You need to control your spending. And you know what I would say? Uh, could you put mom on the phone? <laughs> If I'm lying, I'm dying, it would be like, hey, honey, I'll call you back in a little bit. All right. She wants to meet that need. And, and the truth is, even in a family, it takes both of those, right? And in a church, it takes all of us. And when all of us are not functioning, that means there's sickness in the body. When you're not using your gift for His glory, you're, you're contributing to the sickness. You know, doctors tell us that we've all had cancer. Did you realize that? Because here's what cancer is. Cancer is a renegade cell. It's a cell that has decided it doesn't like what the rest of the body is doing. So it goes on a mission of destruction. And what's crazy in the body, cancer begins to form when those cells, they team up. And they invite other cells to join them in this renegade mission. And that's when a tumor develops. And then something crazy happens. Those renegade cells that have banded together, all of a sudden they look out into the body and they say, let's go explore. And that's when cancer metastasizes. It goes into the lymph nodes or in, into the bloodstream and it goes throughout the body. And before long, the bodies eat up with cancer. And more of the body if it's not dealt with, is unhealthy than is healthy. But I began by saying we've all, we've all had cancer because we've, we've all had that renegade cell. But in a healthy body, the other cells push that out. The other cells make the difference. And the body operates and functions in a healthy way. 
you, you're either a part of helping make us more healthy, or you are a part of cancer within the body. Why would you want to be that? <laughs> so instead, let's discover what makes us tick. Let's discover what it is that has caused us to be different and unique and special in the body of Christ. And let's use those gifts for His glory. Now, two things before I pray. Number one. You're not sure which gift you have? It's okay. It may take a process of discovering that. But all of these things still take place as a part of the spiritual fruit in your life. Remember, gifts are different from fruit. So you still have to tell the truth. <laughs> you still have to sometimes serve. You still may need to learn and, and teach others. You get the picture? You need to encourage. You need to give. Sometimes you have to step up and lead. And we're always supposed to show compassion, right? Some of us are just driven by one of these things more naturally. All right? Secondly, you don't have all of these. But I know someone who does. See, Jesus embodied every gift. And so he knew when it was time to go to the temple and turn over the table and speak truth. He knew when it was time to step in the background and serve and show that and a servant is greater than the master. He knew when it was time to stand up on that mountainside in Matthew 5 through 7 and teach. He, he knew what it was like to gather those disciples together and encourage them. He, he understood the importance of giving. He gave his all and he knew how to lead. He took 12 and well, one of them went by the wayside, but the other 11, they changed the world and he embodied love. And so we end where we began. If you really want to learn what makes you tick, you first got to yield to Jesus. Let him take charge in your life. Let's bow our heads right where we are. Christ follower, in these next few minutes, here's my simple request for you. This is more of a thought-provoking time in God's Word than just an amen message. So what has God said to you specifically? How has the Holy Spirit of God interacted with your life in this moment for the purpose of transformation? Remember, that's our goal. Metamorphosis. More like Him. What needs to be a Adjusted? Are, are you using those gifts? Do you have some of those traits of the cancer in the church? Do you need to repent? What business do you need to do with God? But maybe you're here today and you've never begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. I believe today is the day of your salvation. Because wherever you are in any moment, the Holy Spirit of God is capable of drawing you to Him. He presents to you the gift of salvation that you then have to receive as you unwrap that, you surrender your life to Christ. Has there been that moment in your life? That's the most important gift you ever received. If not, maybe you would take time right now. And there's no magic prayer, but right where you are, you could pray these words. You could say, Jesus, I know I need you. I'm one of those sinners. Just telling you. 
I believe you died for me. You showed me your love by dying for me. Just tell him that. I receive your forgiveness, Jesus. Just tell him, I receive your forgiveness. And now here I am. I'm turning, I'm following you. Renew my mind. Take my will. I surrender. Now tell him thank you. Father, we've gathered in the name of Jesus, seeking to exalt you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you have been with us. You are present with us. We have sensed your presence. And now in this moment of consecration and commitment, we ask you just to move in our hearts for your will. And Father, we know that that takes place as we look to you. So we, with all that we are, we we just, we focus on you, Lord. You are great. You're worthy of our attention. We're here in this moment to worship you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Just a moment, we're going to stand to worship, but I, I want to encourage you, as we worship, contemplate what God is saying to you. What does he want you to, to walk away with today? Where are you in that transformation process? Surrender that to Him. At the conclusion of our time together, I'm going to be at the back of this room. I would love to hang out and say hello to you. I'd love to meet you. There'll be other pastors there. Maybe you want to pray with someone or you want to talk about what God's done. You want to record a decision you've made. We'll tell you how you can do that. But right now, let's stand. Let's worship the one who desires our praise. He is great. We worship Him now. <laughs>